Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Genesis, the 14th chapter, verse 17. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. And we will be reading through Genesis 15, verse 6. Our greatest concentration will be on verses 1 through 6 in Genesis 15, but we are reading by way of review chapter 14, verse 17. As you're turning there, last evening I received a phone call from John and asked, he asked me if I would speak. And after uh, my mind racing until about 2.30 in the morning, uh, where I, I got tired of, of, of uh, I just get tired of being nervous and anxious, I uh, finally drifted off to sleep for a couple hours uh, before I got up and, and, and put the message together uh, today. Um, but I told John that I would uh, willingly step in for him today. I, I endeavor, because I, I don't speak every Sunday, I have a certain luxury to uh, spend sometime, sometimes much more time on a message than I normally would have been able to have spent in the past. And after my last uh, speaking in the second week of February, I immediately began to work on Genesis 15. And I must say that Probably among the messages I've given, I probably have never spent as much time on a message as I have upon this one. Uh, however, my uh, notes, some organized, others have been quite scattered. Jonathan Edwards used to go uh, horseback riding. Uh, we know who Jonathan Edwards was, right? 1740s. Uh, he would go horseback riding for exercise. I've never really quite understood that, because I've, I, but I've never ridden a horse. But he would, I thought the horse is exercising, you know. But he would ride a horse uh, for exercise, and he would think about scripture and uh, different themes, Christian themes, and he would pin notes to his jacket uh, as he was riding. So he's trying to invest each moment that he had for the sake of the kingdom. And then when he would return home, he would take these notes off of his jacket and he would record uh, these notes in some sort of orderly fashion and those notes became what was identified, Marsh you can correct me if, if I use the, uh, pronounce this wrongly, but the miscellanaries, is that, is that the right uh, way to pronounce it? And it's just miscellaneous thoughts that he had put together. But he had all these notes and what I had in my, uh, in my study was notes scattered everywhere. And so when John asked me to, to speak, I knew I had no chance of trying to gather together those notes that were scattered everywhere. And so I hope today that as we consider the text, there's some sense of order as to what it is that I want to share uh, with you. Uh, this is a significant text of scripture, and I trust and pray that God will bless uh, its reading and the delivery of the thoughts that I feel that God has laid upon my mind con concerning it. So let's, uh, let's read together then. Genesis 14. Forgive me for that long, long, lengthy introduction. Genesis 14, verse 17 and following. This is after Abram had gone out and rescued Lot, defeated the kings that had taken Lot into captivity. After his return from the defeat of Ched, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me. Let Abner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. 
Now after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for this great text of Scripture. In reality, there is no word of Scripture that reigns supreme over any other word. And yet, in the midst of your word, there are passages of Scripture that seem to to rise to the top in a certain sense in relationship to the significance of revelation that they bear. And Father, I pray today that you would have your hand upon our time together. I pray that you would have your hand upon each person that is here that has invested time and have come here to worship and honor you. And I pray that in the midst of the varied circumstances that are represented in the lives of people here, that you might encourage hearts today through your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your hand would rest upon me. I I come before you always in a deep sense of need and a deep awareness that unless you undertake for me, unless you gird me up, unless you hold me in the palm of your hand and determine that you will display your glory through words that are spoken, then words would fall to the earth. But Father, I pray today that your hand would rest upon me and it would help me to remember the things that have been recorded here and help me to say those things that you would have me to say. That inasmuch as I would ask for your people to be edified in this place, I would cry out to you from the depths of my heart that you would be glorified and honored in this time. For we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like us uh, this morning, and I'm not sure that I've divided this up quite like after a certain pattern or sections that I might have uh, otherwise with a little bit more time, but I pray that these points or sections would help organize the material for you. I I know sometimes I give you four points, I get through one, or, or maybe two. But I try to give you uh, certain points because, well, first of all, it helps organize my thoughts. And then I, I try to lay them before you so it's kind of like a map, so you kind of know where we're going. And so as we go through our journey today, I don't know how far we'll make, whether we'll make it to the end or just part way, but we'll do the best we can with the time that we have uh, together And I would like to uh, consider together with you four basic points. The first one simply comes under the heading of review. Review. We're going to review uh, chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. And then we're going to begin an ascent to the summit. And the reason why I call the second point an ascent to the summit is because some individuals have looked at this text and they have identified this text as the Everest of scriptures. And it's very evident as to why that is seen because in verse 6, the scriptures say that Abram believed the Lord and it was reckoned unto him righteousness. Very significant passage of scripture. And then, so we're going to kind of ascend to the summit. And then when we get to the summit, you know what it's like when you rise to the summit, you're get to a top of a mountain, you're kind of going up, and eventually you get to the top of the mountain, you kind of 
look, look across the valley and the land that's below, and you kind of survey the land and see what is there. And suddenly from the summit, there's some things that are visible to you that would have been hidden from your eye as you were kind of ascending to the top. What we want to do in the third point is we want to kind of view the valley. We want to kind of survey the land. We're going to be surveying the land of faith, the land of belief, as it is explicitly revealed here in this text and as it uh, is implicitly referred to. And then finally, we're going to look at the result of faith, which is righteousness. So let's, let's begin then with our review and kind of capture a sense of what it is that's happened uh, in the verses that we've studied up until now and where we left off last week. Of course, remember that the last time we were in this text that Abram has gone out and he's gone to rescue Lot, his nephew, and to bring him back uh, safely so that he might return to his home. And the scriptures tell us that with very few men, he pursues a tremendously great army of men. And the scriptures tell us that he overwhelms these men and he pursues them to the borders of the land, at which point he allows whoever survives to continue to go on and he brings Lot and possessions back to the area of Sodom. But just imagine for just a moment that what it must have been like. You know, we read this text and we, I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I have a tendency to read things somewhat matter-of-factly. You know, he, he defeated the kings, yet great, you know, small numbers, great numbers, and he came back with all of these things. We kind of go on, but we just think about what it must have been like. That here is, is Abram, and he's pursuing these, this, 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 the, these vast armies, or this vast army comprised of a number of kings with 318 men. And the enemy that he was pursuing could have been as many as 10,000 or more. Now, those are not good odds, you know, in the natural realm. But consider what happened. They actually fought them. You know, it's just, we think, they went out and they won and they came back with all the goods. You know? <laughs> but they actually fought this army. That means individuals had their shields, their, their, their swords, their spears, whatever it was that they, they had, and they're actually slaying the enemy. You've got 318 men, and you've got this large army. Do you think that after this battle was over, you had some tired soldiers on your hands? <laughs> I believe you would have. These men have now returned victorious, and it doesn't say so, but it could have been like the psalmist says, the sword was, was cleaved to their hand. It's like, a, you know, if you're, you, I don't, as I've gotten older, I get cramps in my hand. I never used to get them there, but I, I get them now. And you always get the idea that maybe there are cramps in their hand as they're holding on to the swords. And they're tired, fatigued from this battle. And, you know, the interesting thing, it doesn't say this, but I can almost assume it. You, you can't say that this is divinely inspired, what I'm going to say to you now, but I would suggest to you that, as in other battles that took place in the context of the Old Testament, I do not believe that one man was lost in Abram's number. I believe that God preserved them as they went into the midst of the battle, and they conquered this enemy. After the conquering of this enemy, Abram comes back, as I referred to it a number of times, he's come back, he's, come, he's finally back, you know. Sodom, and as he's approaching the city, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, meets him. And he has this declaration. Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high. Why is it that he, I, I'm not sure, we, I can't remember exactly what I said about this last time. So I think some of this might be some new territory as we go back to review. But why is it that he does that? Why is it that Melchizedek comes to Abram at this point? Well, when we look at the scriptures, we see that God delivered Abram in numerous occasions. We've already seen uh, how that happened to Egypt, didn't we? God delivered him and brought him out. And we see here how God delivers him. Uh, in the midst of this uh, battle that is there, he's, he's, he's victorious. What happens 
in the context of our lives when there's a certain victory or there's a certain triumph that we experience, that we have. When something goes really well for us, when we have laid our hand to the plow and we realize that a result of the labor that we have expended, that good has come. What is the, what is the natural tendency that takes place in the context of individuals who do not believe? Well, the natural tendency is to believe this is what I have done. <laughs> yeah, I, I have accomplished this. I'm really something. And we live in a day and age when people accomplish certain things and they want to make sure that other people see and know what it is that they've done. I have done this. And the natural tendency is to look at oneself and think, I have accomplished this. But of course, believers never do that. We would never find ourselves in a context where something would happen and we'd begin to feel pretty good about what it is that has taken place and what it is that we've accomplished. But the reality of it is that the Apostle Paul seemed to indicate that in the context of his life that that was a constant challenge and trial. John Knox, who was a pastor in the days uh, back in Scotland in uh, the days of the Reformation, shuddered when anyone would ever compliment him. Uh, as he was, as, as, as he was on his, about on his deathbed, a woman came to him and she began to say all of the wondrous things that she could remember that, that, that John Knox had said that had been a tremendous help to her. And in the midst of her praise of him, he, he, he made her be silent. You know, stop speaking because he realized that in the context of himself, there was a tendency to, for, for this self-gratification. The fact that he could begin to take ownership over what it was that had taken and place and had transpired. And forever in his life, however it is that John Knox is perceived in Scotland or throughout the world, here was a man who feared God alone and walked humbly before his God, always and constantly giving praise to God and never seeking to take any glory for himself. Well, Abram comes back from waging this warfare. And before he has an opportunity to take any delight in himself or what it is that he has accomplished, Melchizedek meets him. He goes out to meet him. And as he goes out, it is as if he is going to arrest the thoughts of Abraham or Abram so that he will realize from whom his victory has come. He goes out to him and notice the repetitiveness of these words that are recorded here. Blessed be Abraham. He said, Abraham, you have been blessed. You have been blessed. Even these very words are beginning to direct his attention away from himself to the God he serves and the God who has delivered him, who has made him triumphant. And he says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high. You, you see, how it comes at us like waves, doesn't it? That here is God who is most high. He is sovereign. He is the one that has brought victory for you. Suddenly in the midst of that, Abram could have never looked at himself and said, oh, I have won this great victory. Look what it is that I have done. Melchizedek directs his attention directly to God. And he says it is due to God's hand upon you that blessing has come. Well, that word had a tremendous impact upon Abram. We see as we read the text that any of the spoils that were gathered or brought back, he delivered into the hands of the soldiers that were together with him, but he took nothing for himself. But he took a tenth and he gave it to God. And his giving a tenth, and I don't believe this is a good text to expound the issues of tithing, but it's a good text to indicate that this was his response for the realization of what had taken place. 
that he gave thanks to God and recognized that yes, it was God who had caused him to be victorious. And so he gives this tenth to the Lord. And after giving this tenth to the Lord, the king of Sodom comes to him. And there there are things I'd like to say about this, but we just simply don't have the time if we're going to press on and make it some way into chapter 15. But the king of Sodom says, you can can, uh, take all the goods, just give me the people. I I will say this, that's pretty arrogant statement he was making. You know, he's commanding, you know, he ran from the enemy, Abram pursued the enemy, was victorious over them, right? And this guy comes like, he's some sort of of superior person, you know, give me the people, you know. When Abram could have said, you know, something in rebuke towards him, but he did not. And Abram just simply says, look at this, verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice anything about those words? Those words are exactly the words that Melchizedek had spoken to him, which reveals to us the fact that the message Melchizedek had declared to him was resonating in his heart. And it was, and it was something that was deeply there. And he mouths these words back. And in essence, as we leave chapter 14, we see a man who's a man of faith, a man of trust, a man who is unwilling to take any credit unto himself for anything that transpires in his life. We see a man who is separated from the world. The way the world does things, the way one who is committed to Christ is committed to the Lord is different. Our perspective is different. The orientation of our heart is different. The gaze of our the sight of our eyes of faith is different. The way we live is different. The way we evaluate things is different. Because we believe. And because of the reality of what Abram experienced and embraced here, that separation he declared and sought to live. Well, that was supposed to take about five minutes. <laughs> but let's see how far we can go here as we now go to chapter 15. And this, this, this chapter is, is, uh, is so amazing to me. I pray God will be glorified. It says in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. We're going to send them out now. We're at the foothills now. We're going to start going up towards the mountain, which is verse 6. After these things, we don't have any idea exactly how much time passed. Some individuals believe that a lengthy period of time passed between chapter 14 and chapter 15. And others individuals believe that virtually no time had passed at all. I, I have a tendency to believe that it's probably the latter as opposed to the former. I believe that probably little time has passed over his victory in battle to chapter 15 after these things. After these things, Abram could have been somewhere between 80 and 85, and Sarah somewhere between 70 and 75. We don't know for sure just exactly how old they were, but it was probably in that range. And the word of God says here that the word of the Lord came to him. And we can identify with that, can't we? But the word of the Lord comes to us, and we know it. The word of the Lord comes to us in the context of our unbelief, and we enter into the gates of salvation. There's a comprehension, there's a realization that God is speaking to our hearts. And the response is solicited from us by God's grace. The word of the Lord comes to us sometimes when we open the scriptures and we read a passage of scripture and we see it somehow differently than we've ever seen it before. The word of the Lord comes to us sometimes in the context of maybe a Sunday morning or a Bible study or some other context where the word of God is unfolded in such a way that 
it, it may not even be something new that we've never heard before. Maybe something that's just very familiar to us, but when it comes to us, it comes with authority. You had that experience. I must tell you that in the context of my life and going through some difficulties, I went through a period and stage in my life because of what I had gone through that I, I found it so difficult to study. I had given my entire life to studying the scriptures, and suddenly I found myself in a place where just, you know, the, the hunger and thirst for God's word was not there. To, to look at the word was a chore, was a challenge. And I can't tell you that when, you, when I got to the other side, what a delight it was for me. I, I must tell you that I've told Marsha this recently. I've said it, it, it's it's only been it's only been recently that I, I just I just find this tremendous joy of studying God's word, and, and, and it almost eclipses the joy of any joy I had before. To open the word of God and to read it, and for God to meet us in that place. And to know the sweetness of those moments. To sit at your chair and to get up and to, to walk away. And there's, just a, there's just an enthusiasm that beats in your heart. You cry out to God so, so thankfully are you to him for him revealing himself to you. And for the word and to interact with your heart and your spirit and there be that liveliness that is there. You've, you've experienced that, haven't you? The preciousness of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. This, there's no denying what it was that was transpiring with this word. And it says here that the Lord came to him in a vision. And we believe that Prior to this point, God has, has come to Abraham in a vision of some manner or sorts, and we have no indication of what that vision was like. It's, it's not like we, you know, we open the book of Ezekiel and we read the first chapter, and Ezekiel has a vision of the Lord, which nobody understands, right? Wheels turning and all, you know, all kinds of things in this vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. You have no idea what's, well, what is this describing... But there's a vision, and, and we look at Isaiah chapter 6, and before communion, we've been looking a little bit at that passage of Scripture, and it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the seraphim surrounded his throne, and they have the wings, which we won't go into, we've gone before, and it says, and it says they, they call out together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Remember, we've looked at this together, that the, the magnificent and the majesty of this vision that is taking place. I was overwhelmed this past week as I look at that passage of Scripture. It says, it says that as they call to one another, the foundations of the threshold shakes at the calling of these words. The earth shaking, the temple shaking, as God in the midst of that place, in the midst of that vision, is displaying his majesty and his splendor. So I, now, I, I believe that in this vision that Isaiah has, that, that it's not an exact representation of what heaven is like, but God is communicating to Isaiah after a manner where humanly speaking or communicating, we might understand majesty and splendor. And he, he communicates himself, God, in this vision to, to Isaiah after a manner that he will understand. But, but to him, he's, he's declaring, he's writing about this tremendous majesty that God possesses. And we go to the book of Revelation, we, we see there where we have visions of the Lamb that is on the throne, communicating to us after a manner which 
We can understand. Not necessarily displaying to us that it's exactly what heaven is like, but a manner that displays for us holiness and glory and splendor and exaltation and humility of the saints before the Lord. It's revealed to us in a way that we can understand. And, and God comes to Abram in this manner. He reveals himself in a vision, in a way that when God speaks and when he perceives with his eyes what is there before him, he knows that it is God. God is in my midst. However, the, whatever the vision was like, this is what Abram knew. God is here. And he says, fear not. Now, John's referred to this on a number of occasions. I, I will just say this by way of repetition. And the words that Jesus said more than any other words in the New Testament was fear not. It's a natural result, consequence of sin. And fear taking many forms for many different reasons in the context of lives of people. But he comes to Abram and he says, fear not. Now why would, why would he say, why would he say this to Abram? Fear not. Well, I believe that perhaps one of the reasons why he might be afraid is because of the vision he's having. <laughs> you know, think about the, you know, the shepherds that were watching their flocks by night, and angels appear to them. Emissaries of God appear to these shepherds in the field, and the scriptures tell us that they, they were fearful and they quaked at the power of the presence of God in the midst of these servants. We think about Moses when he was, I know I'm kind of reversing, going New Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. We, let's reverse back into the Old Testament. Where we have Moses and Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. I mean, read the text and see what it is that it says about the glory of God. And do you suppose that there was some fear and trembling in the midst of the manifestation of the presence of God? I believe that there was. And when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining radiantly, so much so that they feared him because of his face that God was causing to radiate the glory of God. It wasn't even God. <laughs> it was Moses who had been in the presence of God. Now think about standing in a place where God reveals himself. And I would suspect that though Abram has had interactions with God in the past after perhaps some visible manner, that certainly could be a reason to spark fear within his heart, do you suppose? Have you ever been, have you ever been in the context where God has been moving in such a significant and powerful way that you were afraid? I, I, I've been in place, places like that. You don't know what God's going to do next. You don't know what he's going to do in your life. You don't know what he's going to touch. You know? Fear not. Okay. Second reason why I believe that he might have been fearful is because he could have been discouraged. Because he, he says, uh, fear not. I am your shield. And your reward shall be very great. It is possible that after... Abram has been victorious in battle that he goes back to his home and he begins to think about what has just transpired. He has pursued kings with a vast army and defeated them. Could there have been in his heart some concern that they might return, that they might come back? And that he would be physically threatened at their return. 
Well, it certainly could be the case because remember Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? <laughs> Who is victorious over the prophets of, and John would want us to say, Baal. But Baal for others, you know, and we're not pluralizing it. We're just saying Baal. And after he is victorious in battle, the next scene is we find him fearing for his life because of Jezebel and running and saying, Lord, I am all alone. (laughs) After tremendous victory, (laughs) here is the great prophet of God. And, and believe me, I'm not criticizing him because I, if I were, had been in his sandals, you know, I'd be thankful I wasn't. And so. But God comes to him, and it could have been because of, the, of a fear factor that had gripped him. And he says, I am your shield. This, word for, this, 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 this identification of being a shield means that he's going to be his protector. As I've protected you in the past, I'll continue to protect you. And the scriptures give us other images in the Old Testament, particularly where God is displays by way of revelation the protection for the protective care that he gives to his people. The Lord is a strong tower. Do you remember? Oh, the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. The righteous run into him and they are glad. The Lord is like a rock. He is the rock of our salvation. You stand upon that rock and the protective care is upon your life. The walls of salvation, you know, we close with this because whatever may happen to the flesh, whatever may happen to this body is nothing This body of flesh that we have is whisked away at the wink of an eye. But our spirits endure forever. The walls of salvation cause us to be secure, Isaiah says. So he says, I'm your shield. And your reward will be great. This could be translated, I am your great reward. I am your great reward. Does anybody have something other than ESV? I read from the ESV. Does anybody have that? NIV, I don't know what the NIV renders there. But I am your great reward. There, There is no reward for the spirit of man like the Lord Jesus Christ. No Lord. Jesus in his high priestly prayer was praying to the Father in the presence of the disciples. And he said, Lord, he said, I'm praying for them that you will keep them so that where I am, they may be. Okay. Can the power of those words sink into your heart? That where I am, they may be. I long to be with them. That where I am, they may be. That we are together with the Lord eternally. He is our great reward. You know, I, uh, by way of illustration, if I can say this, I, I. And I know you feel this too, so I'm talking about my context. You could easily talk about your context similar to mine. I, I, I enjoy being with my wife, Marsha. I, 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 wherever it is, I don't care where it is, I just love to be with her. I've told her that we could sit on the front porch and watch the grass grow, and I'm happy to do that. Some people have heard some of the things that we do together, some of the shopping excursions that we go on, some of the stories we go through, like antique stores, that sort of thing. Of course, every man loves to go through an antique store. You know, the clothing or something like that. And it has been said to me in the midst of someone hearing me tell with 
being with Marsha during those times, that I must be really bored and, you know, like, yeah, I, I get over, you know. And, but you know what? I love all those experiences. Because it doesn't matter what we do. What matters is that we're together. I don't care. Just if I can be with her, that's, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. There's, there's a specialness about it, you see. And, and, and that's, it, in an earthly way, kind of describes, in a sense, in a, in a very small way, reflects what it is like when we realize that the Lord is our great reward, that we just want to be with him, and oh, how he loves to be with us. I can't imagine what heaven will be like. Can you? Can you? He goes on to say, O Lord, verse 2, by the way, I'm confident we're not going to get to the last part of this. I know it's it's the case. He says, uh, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. It's kind of interesting here that There's another fear that Abram had. It was a fear related to the promise that had been given to him, that there would come from his household an heir, an offspring. And as the days are going by, there's nothing happening, nothing indicating that this is going to be fulfilled. He has no children. He goes into battle. There's no son together with him as he goes into the battle. He looks around at his household and he sees others that have joined together with him and husbands and wives are having children. Their numbers are, uh, are receiving addition with regularity, but there's no son for Abram. You know, the interesting thing is, is that the word Abram means What? Exalted father, or high father, or the father of multitudes. (laughs) He he has this title, you see. (laughs) And everybody knows what his name means. Everybody that's in his encampment knows that this is what his name means, and yet he has no children And they see that they they themselves are flourishing with children. And I wonder if sometimes individuals, I mean, I'm just, I'm presuming that at some point in time, someone had to go up and say something. You know, there was somebody that lacked tact. You know what I mean? That went up to him and said, this is what your name means, but look at this, you know. We know that Christians always have tact. We know that no, no one would have done that. But, but this, is his, this is his situation. And God, God doesn't rebuke him for what it is that he says. He doesn't say, you know, Abram, I've already come to you twice. And I've told you what's going to take place. Why, why don't you believe me? He doesn't do that. He just, he just comes to Abram and responds in a, in a very gentle and a, in a very caring way. Eleazar, who was he? He was a member of the household of Abram. May have been one of the top guys in his household or something, a leader. And he was part of his number and could have legitimately been understood 
because of his position, maybe perhaps adopted, whatever, to have been the offspring of Abram. And Abram's lament is, is that there's, there's no one that comes from my loins, that is a, a product of my union together with my wife, that is my offspring, and, and all of these promises, they're going to be carried on by someone else that's a member of my house. And God comes to him and speaks to him. And he says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so, at this advanced stage, we've heard, read many times, God comes to him and he says, You are going to have a son. Biologically born to you and your wife. Your, your, your heir is not going to be someone who's just a number of your household. But you literally are going to have, biologically, this child. And to, and to impact him more significantly about this promise, God takes him outside. So what he reveals to us now, Abram has been probably in his tent, and it's night. God has revealed himself at night to Abram. And he takes him outside his tent, and he says, look up into the sky and see the stars that are there. And he looked toward heaven, and the number of the stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Now prior to this time, God has promised Abram that there was some, someone from his family, but he has not explicitly said that this shall be a child biologically to you. But here, in this text, he speaks about a son, and the book of Romans, in chapter 4, speaks about this offspring as being many. Romans chapter 4, I commend your reading to it. I'm not sure, I've, I've lost my way in my notes, I'm not sure just, ex oh, okay, I have it. Romans 4, verses 3, 9, and 22. And here, God is promising a multitude of an offspring. We have here a, a physical fulfillment, but beyond that, Romans dows our attention in to the point that it's, this is going to be a spiritual people. That this is what Abram was really looking for. It was not just a physical nation, but a spiritual people. And Romans says that God will give to Abram this great multitude of offspring, those that come physically or spiritually rather from him, the father of faith. And when you cross-reference this passage with Galatians 3 verse 6, Paul dials it down even deeper and he says that this offspring refers not to many but to one, to the seed. So that what Abram is now seeing as he's looking into the sky is he is seeing a promise that is going to be fulfilled through his line. It's a promise that is going to be fulfilled and its end is in Christ himself who is the Lord and King over his people. And when he sees that, the word of God says, he believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. He believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. What it was that he saw here was not some sort of vague belief that 
there was a God in this world who would care for him and supply for him, but what he saw was the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing the person and work of Christ and what he would accomplish. This is here, a cross-reference to John chapter 8 where the scriptures tell us that Jesus said, Abram saw my day and he rejoiced in it. This vision that he has here at this point results in belief. Now I've brought you, I'm dropping us off at the doorstep of, or the top of the mountain. But we do not have time to explore today what it was that took place. But in this text, I'm just going to say this for the next time I speak. In this text, there is so much implied and explicitly stated about belief that... I mean, this this is foundational for everything else that flows in the scriptures. And uh, so next time, tune in again. (laughs) Next time time we come back to Genesis, we're we're going to start at the summit. And we're going to take a look at this faith of Abram and see what it was and how it was and what it meant to him, what it means to us, what it means to the believer in the context of New Testament faith. And I, uh, I hope and pray that as we, Lord willing, have the opportunity to do that together, that your hearts will be greatly encouraged uh, as we explore this topic together. But forgive me for not making it farther than I intended to today, but let's bow our heads together for prayer if we could. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here, and I pray that at some point, somewhere in the context of this message, as they have labored together with me and have been so attentive, I pray, Father, that you have brought encouragement to hearts, that you would renew our faith and our trust in you. That you would cause us to rise up like wings, with wings as eagles. To run and not be weary and to walk and not faint. Help us, O Lord, we pray, in the context of our pursuit of you. And in the midst of that pursuit, may we forever see that you are our great reward. For Father, we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.